We're still talking about worship, singing about worship, practicing worship. I've been learning that worship isn't something you do. Worship is an attitude of the heart. And when you have an attitude of worship, whatever you do is worship. It gives glory to God. And I was so encouraged and blessed when Lafayette was here because that was the subject that God had put in his heart to bring to us. And he was encouraging, and I've shared this with you last week, that God is indeed preparing to do something here. I just sense an expectancy. Um, and I, and I, when Tony and Lisa Cook were here, they shared the same thing. They felt people's expectancy. And that's something the Spirit of God is doing. I'm going to pray because what we're going to talk about today is a continuation of what we did before several weeks ago because last week was Resurrection Sunday, the week before that Lafayette was here, and before that we got into an area of, we've been part of an area of our study on worship um, that we're going to come back and, and finish today, and then we're going to move on. We're beginning to come to an end of this because there's the next phase of where we're going builds on this, and there's a pattern I've seen in the Bible that worship leads to something else that we've tried to do without the worship. And this will all begin to make sense to you as we go down the road. So don't worry about whether you understand what I'm saying or not right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the opportunity to come and to worship you and to praise you. We thank you, Father, for beautiful music. We thank you, Father, for hearts that are open to you and love you and are here today because they desire not only to please you and to serve you, but to know you better and to be closer to you and have you closer to us. And so, Father, this is a desire you have put in our heart. And you've not put it in our heart to frustrate us, but you put it in our heart to, so that we would desire you and you could satisfy that desire. And we come with that motive today as we turn to your word. We go again, Father, to the promise that your word tells us that eye has not seen and ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of us all that you have prepared for those who love you. And that's us. But your word goes on to say that your spirit has been given to us to search out the depths of your heart and then to reveal those heart, the things in your heart that you've given to us. And so, Holy Spirit, we look to you today to do just that, to take this word, this living word, and to breathe it into our hearts so that our God, our Creator, our Lord, our Savior may be more real to us and His will for our lives may be more clear. And we trust you, Father, today that by the Holy Spirit, that the word that comes forth will bring spirit and life and, and not death and condemnation. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to just share an introduction to this because what we're going to talk about today, uh, I, just, I, I was praying so much this morning about having this word come across because God's challenging us. I don't know if you feel that yet, but God's challenging us. Yeah, I do. He's challenging me. And he never challenges you to do something you can't do or that he won't enable you to do because he's a just and a fair God. But he always challenges us to come up higher and closer to him. And in the process, sometimes that confronts things in us we don't want confronted or may make us uncomfortable. And as I'm praying about that, even during during that beautiful special that we just listened to, I just sensing God inside of me, reminding me that whenever God becomes clear, when he makes himself known and becomes clear, people have one of two reactions to him. They either run away in fear or they're drawn closer to him. 
And we saw that when we looked a long time ago at Moses when he came in Exodus 19 and verse 17. He says, Moses came down, came out to bring the people to their God. And when the people began to see God as he displayed himself at that time on the mountain, they, they were afraid and they came to Moses and said, this is more than we bargained for. You go talk to him. We're going back to our tents. And when you go talk to him and find out what he says, come tell us and we'll obey him. Well, of course, they didn't. They didn't obey him because what God in his infinite wisdom knew is that the reason God was calling them to the base of the mountain to have an experience with him is so that they would obey him because they'd see him for who he is. And because they had to now see God through a mediator, through Moses, they, they got the message of God, but they didn't have the personality of God. They didn't have the power of God. They didn't have the fear of the Lord. And this is where so much of the church is in the United States today. We've had wonderful teaching. We've had, it's so, not just in the pulpits, but on TV and podcasts. You know, people have their favorite preacher and all this. And we're having God speaking to us through people. But the biggest lack in the church today, every church just about, and I don't know every church, but I mean basically from what I see, and even in our own lives, is a lack of the real fear of the Lord. Reverence for Him. Not afraid of Him. Because what happened is the children of Israel became afraid of Him and ran away. The reason they were afraid of him is they didn't know him. I've never taught this before. Psalm 103 says, Moses knew his ways, and Israel knew his deeds. Israel, the people, knew the things God did, but they didn't know God. And as a result, they had very good intentions, very sincere intentions to obey what God said, but they didn't have the power to do it because they didn't have the reverence for who God is that commanded them to do those things. Moses, on the other hand, seeing the same, in fact, he saw God's power and his, his, his lightnings and his thunderings. They even saw them closer up, and instead of running from God, it drew him to run closer to God. To the point that when I think it's in Exodus 33, he's now standing in the presence of God. He's been there 40 days and he says, this is wonderful, but I want more. I want to see your glory. I've seen your power. I've seen your majesty. I've seen your authority, but I want to see your glory. And God says, here's what I got to do. I got to put you in the crack in this rock because you can't see my face. If you see my face, you can't live because that's where the source of his glory. But, but I'll cover it up and I'll, let you, I'll walk by and you can see the, my back. So the more Moses saw of God and his power and his majesty and his authority, the more he was drawn to God and wanted God. Israel ran the other way. Jesus talks about this same thing. or it's, uh, John talks about this same thing in, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. He says, Jesus came. Jesus was the light. But there were those that loved the darkness more than the light. Why? Because the light shone, shined on what they were doing in the darkness and they didn't want it exposed. So we have this pattern we see. And, and I'm really sensed to, sh- to, to share this with you and spend this time because this is what I believe God's doing. God is preparing us to reveal himself. I don't know what that means. I don't know whether, you know, he's going to physically... I don't know what that means. I just know that's what he's drawing us towards. But the result is, as he does this, he's showing us aspects of him that demand more of us and require more of us. And there may be some that when they sense that want to run the other way because they don't want to change. But what you'll, if you're open, what you'll find is something inside of you will draw you. 
I share that with you because as, you, as, this, as you, we look more and more at who God is and his character and his nature and his attributes, I don't want you to feel condemned because we're all in this place. What we're going to talk about today is challenging to all of us if we're really open. But God's drawing us together somewhere. He's not saying, look, you're all messing up on this. You're in trouble. He's saying, this is where I am. This is who I am. Come, step up. It's like a father challenging his children. Look, come on, you can do that. You can walk now. It's time you can walk. You're 14 years old. You don't have to crawl anymore. You can walk. (laughs) That's a little exaggerated. But you know, a father and a parents will challenge their children because they know with their help they can do that. Because they're always trying to bring them up to a higher level. And in God's case, not just a higher level, but closer to Him, to know Him better. Amen? Did you find Isaiah 6? Okay, all right. I wanted to give you time. All right, just very quickly what we're talking about here. This, of course, is Isaiah called up in a vision before God, and this is his commissioning in the ministry. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it, that's above his throne, stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with the other two he flew. And one cried to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people, or people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And he goes on, and God cleanses his lips and sends him into ministry. But what we're looking at here is that the process is this. In order for Isaiah to worship, he had to first of all see God for who God is. Not just out of his Bible that he had, which was the scrolls that he had, but literally taken up in a vision, we're assuming it's a vision, into heaven and seeing God as he is, in all his majesty, in all his glory, in all his attributes, and the immediate reaction he has is to see himself for who he is on his own. And as good a man as he was, as righteous a man as he was, he says, woe is me because I am a man of unclean lips. Why? Because he's now seen perfection. And he realizes what he's like compared to perfection on his own. And we're not talking about being in Christ. We're not talking about our redemption. We're talking about who we are on our own compared to God. And he had to go through that in order to be prepared to be sent out into ministry. And we've seen this as the pattern. So we've been looking at, and this fits into worshiping Him in spirit and truth, which is in John chapter 4, because this is the truth part. Seeing God for who He really is, and then seeing us for who we really are. So we've talked about those two aspects of worship and in truth. Now we're spending a little while looking at, all right, what is the truth about God? What is He really like? What, is the, what does He say about Himself? And the first thing we saw about God is He's the creator of all things. He's the source of all things. Everything owes its complete existence to God. We owe every breath we breathe, every beat of our heart, every moment we have on earth. Everything we have is a gift from God, and we need to learn to be continually thankful and and grateful and, and, and humbled to realize on our own we can do zero, zilch, nothing. Nothing. We can't breathe on our own. And without that understanding, we begin to get a little confident and puffed up as, well, I can do this and I can do that. You can only do what you can do by the grace of God. I love that verse in Isaiah chapter 1. And I'll often start my prayer time with it. God, I I, I, I hope I'm at least today as smart as an ox and as smart as a donkey. 
because he's talking to Israel and he says, at least an ox knows where its manger is, where it gets fed from, its source of food. And at least a donkey knows it has a master. But you, Israel, don't know either. And we can begin to develop a pride. Well, hey, I got a great job. I feed myself. I provide for my family. You don't have anything that God hasn't provided for you. And so we can't worship Him. We can't even begin to worship, really worship Him and, and know who He is if we don't understand that basic foundation. And then we looked at His holiness because that's what the angels are saying about Him. Holy means He's pure in everything He does. And we talked about how hard that is for our minds to grasp purity because everything we know is relative. It has some degree of, one, of good and some degree of bad, some degree of hot and some degree of cold. But God is absolutely, purely holy, perfect. It's impossible for Him to have any defect in Him. And then we looked at the third one, and this is what we're still looking at today. It's in the ver- first verse of Isaiah 6. He says, In the day, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. The word Lord there is the Hebrew word Adonai, A-D-O-N-A-I in English. And it means the master over a servant. It means someone who is in absolute, absolute authority over another. It's used in the Old Testament of kings that had the absolute power and authority of life and death. King Nebuchadnezzar is considered to be one of the kings of the Old Testament times that had absolute power. When you have absolute power, you don't have to justify yourself, you don't have to explain yourself. And the only thing that is expected, the only thing that's acceptable, the only thing that will allow you to keep your head sitting on your shoulders is immediate, complete obedience to whatever the king says. Whether it's reasonable, unreasonable, whether you think you can do it or not, whether you can do it or not, because he has absolute authority and the absolute power to carry it out, your only response is to immediately obey it or die. That's what Adonai means. It is that level of authority. And that's hard for us to get our minds wrapped around, just like it's hard to get our minds wrapped around anything that's absolute, because we live in a democracy that's based on democratic principles. doesn't mean it's always functioning that way. But we're, we're, what's ingrained in us from children growing up is that, well, we all have some rights and some say here. But in an absolute dictatorship, you've got zero rights unless the king gives them to you. So it's hard for us to kind of... We can, we can, we can say the words, Lord. We can say the words, authority. But, in our, but our understanding of what those words mean are very different than they were in this time and are in other parts of the world right now. This is not just back in biblical times. Other parts of the world right now, you don't have any rights. Whether nature should have given we gave you the rights or not, the ruling authority doesn't recognize them. And they don't have to be right, wrong. They don't have to justify or explain themselves because they have absolute authority and absolute power to exercise. You just obey them or you die. Charles Spurgeon, in one of his sermons that I have the notes of about 
which is interesting because what drew my attention to it is it's in a section on worship and it's talking about seeing God for who He is in order to worship Him. And he goes through certain examples of worship in the Old Testament and he said, in essence, what they mean is to prostrate yourself before God recognizing Him as the ultimate authority over your life. And the act of bowing before Him, of prostrating yourself, is an act of submission to His authority. We talked about the significance of that is, you know, the Bible doesn't say you have to kneel every time you pray because Paul talks at one point about standing and lifting your hands in the air. But there's something about kneeling and getting your head down that acknowledges that you're not talking to God one-on-one. See, when you talk to somebody one-on-one, there's this implication that we're kind of at the same level. But when you're talking to somebody with your face in the dirt, you're, you're, but that symbolically, by the physical positioning of yourself, is acknowledging that person as a higher authority than you. Now, we don't have to do that in our culture around here, but there's something about doing that with God. Just getting on your knees before God, bowing your face down before God, is acknowledging that you are in submission to Him. Now, you can bow all you want and still have a proud, upright heart. So it's not the act of bowing, but it somehow what we do with our body does signify, does give us indication to our heart where, where our attitude is. All right. So we've looked at that, and he talks about, Spurgeon talks about the fact that the progression of worship is, starts out with wonder and awe, which is what we're really, the stage we're in right now. And then it moves to reverence for who he is. And then the motivation for worship ultimately is love for who He is. But you can't love somebody at that level without knowing them. You can't have a heart love for somebody, like, for God, of, that's respectful and, and awe, unless you've gone through the process of wonder and reverence before it. It's like 47 years in July we'll be married. I love her more than I ever have before, but I know her more than I've ever had before. We've been through things together over 47 years raised four children, four grandchildren. And, and, and we've been through things together. We've been through phases of life together. And so the basis of my love for her now is completely different than when I first fell in love with her and asked her to, to uproot from her roots in Ohio and come up to this strange land called New England, foreign country at that time it felt like to her. And she came with me because she loved me, but the basis of the love that we have for each other now is completely different because we, we, we have a knowledge of each other that's more solid, broader, and that's true in our worship of God. It, so it ultimately ends up worshiping Him because we adore Him. But we, we can adore Him because we now know who He is. We've gone through that process, those steps. And that's what Spurgeon talks about. We looked at Romans 13. Romans 13, 1 and 2 says that all authority, all authority ultimately comes from God. We talked about the fact that the reason authority comes from God is God made everything. And I went through the example of you buy a car, they hand you the title, and then they give you the keys, which is your evidence of the authority over the car. (coughs) And the reason that Ford Motor Company can give you that authority is they had it. And the reason they had the authority over the car is they made it. And so the ultimate source of authority comes from the one who created it, and then they can delegate that authority. And on Wednesday night, we just went through the process by which God, we showed in in Genesis how God delegated his authority to Adam, and how Adam then turned and delegated it to Satan, which is why Satan is now the God of this world, and Jesus came back as the second Adam to bring that, win that authority back for the church. We talked about that in the context of prayer. So God, absolute authority, he delegated to man in this earth. 
but he still is the whole source of authority. And he goes on to say, every authority that's legitimate authority comes from him. Now, there are people that exercise their own authority, but they didn't get it from God, so God's not going to back that authority up. They've taken it unto themselves, and that's what Satan's done. Satan's exercised an authority in, in, when he tried to rebel against, the angel, against God in heaven. He exercised an authority God didn't give him, and guess where that takes him? It kicked him out very quickly. So what he came to the earth is he, he can't, he's not going to take try to illegally seize an authority from God. Instead, he tricks man into giving at Satan the authority he had. So Satan has that authority in this earth legally, but not ultimately. Because Jesus came as the second Adam to win that authority back. And all of us who are in Christ are now under his line of authority. If you weren't here Wednesday night, you can get the CD. You can also go onto the website and the notes are on there with the chart that I showed about that process. Well, I, don't want to, I don't want to go into that anymore. All right, because we need to move on. All right. Okay. Go to uh, Isaiah 66. Well, I don't need to go there. Let me, let me quote this for you. It, Reverence for God's authority, reverence, respect for God's authority as Adonai, as Lord, is expressed only one way. It's not with how loud we sing, how much on key or off key we sing. It's not with whether our hands are raised or whether we're jumping or whether we're kneeling. Those can be expressions of it, but they are not the proof of our reverence for His Lordship. There is only one legal or or there's only one true proof and expression of our worship of His Lordship and that's our obedience to His Word. I knew that would be popular. But it's the truth. Isaiah 66, 2, we talked about it before. God says, this one thing I'm looking for. This, oh, well, let, me, let me quote it to you. You don't need to turn there because I, I don't want to take the time. On this one thing will I look, God says. On him who is poor in spirit, that means humble, and of a contrite heart, and who trembles at my word. Not afraid that God's going to punish us, but we have such reverence for His Word, for His commandments, such reverence for what God says to us that we tremble at the idea of even considering disobeying it. Such a reverence that we just stand in awe of this Word. Now, I've been in churches where, you know, when they're going to read the Scriptures on Sunday, they kiss the book, okay? And some of you have been in churches or may have been raised in churches like that. But you can kiss the book and go do every, and not have any idea what's in it because you're kissing a piece of leather with some paper inside. On the other hand, there's a reverence for God's Word that, that I've been in churches that they have when the Word is read. There's a reverence for it. But again, that's not whether you stand or kneel. That's the reverence that's in here. It may be expressed sometimes by standing. It may be expressed sometimes by kneeling. It may be expressed sometimes by kissing. You know, it's an interesting exercise to try. Try reading your Bible on your knees. Just try it sometime. See what effect it has on your attitude towards what you read. That's just a little footnote. Try it. So God's saying, my heart is open to those that have a, have a humble heart and who tremble, have a respect and reverence for my word. Look at another one. 
Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33, verse 30. Now, Ezekiel was a prophet that God sent to the children of Israel while they were in exile to prepare them for what God was going to do in the future to give them a hope and to comfort them at times, sometimes challenge them. And this is God's word to the prophet. As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you besides the walls. That was happening back then. They didn't have Facebook out there, but there was all kinds of discussion going on about the preacher out there. They're talking about besides the walls and in the doors of the houses, and they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, please come and hear what the word of the Lord, the word that comes from the Lord. So they say, God's speaking in our synagogue. God's speaking through this prophet. Come here. So they come to you, Ezekiel, as people do, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they don't do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do not do them. What's he saying there? He's saying they, they, they love to hear the Word of God. They enjoy the Word of God. And they sing praises to the Word of God and they express gratitude for the words that they hear and they're full of enthusiasm and emotion about it but they have no intention of doing it. And he said, they're no difference than someone that comes to hear a performance of a beautiful instrument or a gorgeous voice. In other words, it's just entertainment to them. Now listen carefully. What he's saying is, when talking to the Israelites, and of course we're just listening, it doesn't apply to us. Talking to the Israelites, what he's saying is, they come to church, they sing praises to God, they listen to the Word, they enjoy the Word, they talk about the Word, they say, wasn't that Word wonderful? But they have no intention of changing what they do. They still go out and do what they want to do when they go out the door. So really all that's happening, God's saying here, is they've been entertained. Because what does entertainment do? It makes you feel better. It gives you a lift. It, you, you spend a pleasant time together. So if you go to a, to a wonderful performance, if you go to, a, you know, whether it's a symphony or a concert somewhere and you hear, you know, a wonderful performance and you, you know, you come out of there and you just feel encouraged and uplifted. No, you just spent a wonderful time during that two hours or whatever it was and you leave and all it becomes is a memory to you, then that's called entertainment. That's what entertainment is. Entertainment needs it filled up some of your time with a pleasant experience. And it's not that there's wrong with that, as long as you understand that's all it is, is entertainment. But that's what so much of what's called praise and worship in the church in the United States has become. It's become entertainment 
and it's performed by performers who are performing entertainment. And because we leave feeling better, because we've been uplifted, we think it was wonderful worship. But worship is what God sees it as, not what we feel. And we cannot be worshiping Lord if He's not in that position in our life. Now remember, God's not condemning us. He's calling us. He's calling us somewhere to see where we are and to be willing to change and allow Him to bring us somewhere. And that's what God is telling Ezekiel here. This is what's going on in Israel under your word. All right? You want to get more excited? (laughs) All right. Let's go over to Matthew. We're going to go into the New Testament now. Let's go to Matthew chapter 8. One of my favorite stories. We won't dwell here. We've talked about the fact that God is Adonai. He is Lord. And Adonai, of course, is a Hebrew word for Lord. And we've talked about what that means. Jesus, when He came to this earth, took on flesh and stepped into His ministry stood in the place of God in this earth. And so he not only represents, but he is carrying with him God's authority as Lord when he walks on this earth. Philippians 2 says, because he humbled himself and left heaven and took on, gave up all his attributes and took on the body of a man and dwelt among us. And because he was executed and went through the whole process of giving his life up, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name, that at the mention of his name, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because that's where the authority came from. What we're going to see here is a story of a man, a centurion, a Roman officer, a Gentile, no covenant with God. He hadn't had to memorize the first five books of the Bible the way every Jewish male had to do at that time, and plus the book of Isaiah. He wasn't in the covenant of God, but he understood something that we're going to see that the, that the Hebrew Pharisees and authorities didn't understand. This Roman officer understood something they didn't understand, and it's this. A centurion comes to Jesus. We're going to go over to chapter, verse 5. Romans 8, verse 5. or Matthew 8, verse 5. Is that where I told you to go? Okay. I didn't go there. Now when, Jesus, now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed, dead, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. In other words, you don't need to come over to my house and lay hands on my servant the way everybody else has asked you to do. I don't need you to do that. You just say the word here, and my servant will be healed there. Why? Verse 9. For I also, that word is important, am a man under what? Authority also means I'm comparing me to you. 
because I recognize the authority that you have because I'm also somebody that deals in authority as a Roman officer. The little words like also can be very important. I also am a man, look at this, under authority. So that means the centurion is recognizing that Jesus is somebody under authority. Oh, this is going to get good. And what this tells us is the reason why the centurion could recognize that Jesus was somebody under authority is because the centurion was also somebody under authority. He understood what it meant to be under authority and he recognized the indication of the attitude of being under authority so that enabled him to recognize something about Jesus that sometimes even his own disciples didn't recognize that Jesus was somebody first of all under his father's authority. Let's go on. Remember Jesus said, I only do what I see my father do. I only say what I hear him say. That's the indication of being under authority. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, which means I'm in authority. So the centurion says, I understand this because I am somebody that's under authority and I'm also somebody that's in authority. And here's the evidence Here's the indication that I know that they're under my authority. Why? Because I say to this one, go, and we have this nice discussion about whether it's a good thing idea or not. No. He said, I say to my soldier, go, and guess what he does? He goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. This is so simple, but it's profound. What he's saying is the evidence, the reason I can prove that my soldiers recognize my authority is they do exactly what I tell them to do. If I say go, they just go. If I say come, they just come. And to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Assuredly, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. He didn't say, I haven't found such great understanding of authority. He said, I haven't found such great faith. So Jesus is equating faith with being under authority. I didn't plan to go in this direction, but we're going here today. So many times we want to be built up in faith so we can get results, but we don't want to be under authority. But what is faith? Faith is taking God at His... At His what? At His what? But if His Word doesn't have any authority to me, then how can I really have faith in His Word? See, it's not like a smorgasbord or a buffet. You know what they do? You ever notice that a smorgasbord, I don't know if they have many more buffets, where do they put the good stuff at the end? You know, come on, the good stuff is the dessert, right? Oh, let's come on, don't be so hard. 
Oh, I don't eat that stuff. There's something on there you like. And see, with a buffet, you get to go and choose what you want, how much you want, where you want it, and when you want it. That's why we like them. They're not good for us, but we like them. And we bring that attitude to walking with God. Well, God's bought and paid for all this. I can just go get what I want when I want. But it was in meditating on this scripture. This to me is, to me, this is, for me personally, has been a story that has had a profound impact on me and, and continues to. Because here's what the centurion's saying. I know that standing here, if you just say the word, my servant's going to be healed back in my house. Because I recognize that your word has such authority, you don't need to do anything other than speak it. And I recognize that your authority doesn't come from you. Your authority comes from the Creator who created this universe with His words. And because you are completely submitted under His authority, His authority can now flow through you into that servant's body, and that servant's body has to obey your words just as all of creation has to obey the Creator's words because it's the same authority flowing through your words. And that's what he recognized because he also lived his life under the authority of his commanding officer. So that when his commanding officer gave an order, he immediately knew his only choice was to obey it, and then he gave that order to his, to his soldiers under him. So the authority to carry that order out ultimately went back to the supreme commander who had originally issued the order. So you can see it. There's a flow to authority. And Jesus told his disciples before he went to the cross, I am giving you something so that you can go carry out the commission that I've given you. I'm giving you my authority, and the evidence of that authority is I'm giving you my name to use in the situations that you go out and face. This is off the notes, but this is good. I'm giving you my authority. That's why it says in, in, in Matthew 28, 18, all authority... In heaven and earth has been given unto me. You go forth and make disciples. Why? Taking that authority and exercising it towards that purpose. And we read, because to do something in Jesus' name literally means to do it in His place. It's as if He's standing there doing it. It's like a power of attorney. Some of you also. I have a power of attorney for my mother. My mother's 90 years old. She's not in a mental state to be able to take care of her for her own affairs. And I have a power of attorney over her finances and affairs. So I can sign things on her behalf as if she signs them. In fact, the technical way to do it, I think still, I don't know if it still is. It used to be I'd sign her name. Because I'm doing it in her authority that she had to give me. Now, if she didn't give that authority to me, I don't have it. Now, here's where we miss it. We want to be in authority, but not under it. We want to take the name of Jesus and see mountains move. We want to, we want to speak the word of God and have things change, 
But it's not our words that have any power. You and I have no authority over storms. We have no authority over sickness and disease. We have no authority in and of ourselves. Why? Because we're not the creator of all things. But we have an opportunity. The opportunity is if we will come under the authority of our Lord, who is already under the authority of His Father, then that authority will flow through our Lord, through us, into that situation. I've used this example before. We're into springtime now, and now it's time, you know, to plant flowers and maybe some grass, and of course, what do you have to do? You've got to water it. Well, I can't create water. I mean, even the water in my body, I don't create. So in order to water the flowers, I've got to go to the source of the water. Well, I'm not going to go back to the ultimate source, but coming into my house, the, 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 the water authority for the town we live in has piped it into our house. And we have pipes under, in the house and going throughout the house, just as you do, distributing in different places. One of them is to a faucet or spigot, depending on where you come from, that, that comes out of the back foundation of our house. And all I've got to do is turn that faucet or spigot and the water that's in the pipes come out. The water that comes from the, author- the, the water authority comes out. The water that comes from the reservoir comes out. But I, water coming out of that faucet doesn't help the flowers, so I got to get something called a hose. This isn't tricky. And then I got to hook the hose up to the faucet, right? And I got to turn the faucet on. And then I can take the, the the hose allows me to deliver that water to whatever it is that needs it. But because the hose can't create water, it has to be connected to something that has the water flowing through it, right? But here's what so many of us are trying to do. We're trying to water the flowers with the hose connected still on the reel or or on the ground or to ourselves. And we're wondering why there's no power coming out, water or power coming out of the hose because it's not connected to the source of the water that's in my house. There's a lot at stake at whether or not we're under His authority because if we're not, how can it flow through us if we're not connected to it? Let's move on. We may not finish this today. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Let that sink in. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Notice he's equating with calling him Lord and doing his Father's will. Why? Because his Father's authority is what he perfectly carried out. 
But many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That word lawlessness is amania in Greek. Monos means the law, the, the commandment, and the A or A in front of it means without it. So lawlessness basically means I do what I want to do. Now remember, I don't in any sense sense the Holy Spirit's condemning us. He's challenging us. He's challenging us because we're so free with our words. We're so free with the things we do without being sure that our hearts lined up with the words that we're saying. And I really sensed the Lord telling me at one point, why do you call me Lord and you don't just automatically do what I say to do? You have to consider it and look at other things. We're going to go there. Maybe not today. Yeah, let's go there. 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. Can we really worship God and call Him Adonai if we don't live in submission to His Word? Can we really worship Him if we're not submitted to His Word? Because there's no legitimate authority apart from God, every effort to exert independent authority is rebellion. Romans, chapter thir- Romans 13, chapter 2. Every effort to exert authority apart from God's authority, the Bible calls rebellion. And of course, Satan did that. In Genesis chapter 3, don't turn there, Satan comes in and his whole plan is to uproot what God has just done. 1 Samuel 15 is to uproot what God has just done. And the only way he does it, comes into the garden and the woman says to him, God has said we shall not eat of the tree of... If you look over in chapter 2, you find out God said you can eat of every tree you want. There's just the tree, two trees in the middle of the garden you can't eat of, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't eat of those. That's all he said. He didn't explain it. He just said, thou shalt not eat those trees. So what's the first thing Satan tempts them to do? is to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's going to become important to us. And how does he do it? He comes by entering into a discussion with her, and what he's trying to do is to get her to understand and defend what God has said. Has God said, you shall not eat of the tree? And she, I think she starts out by trying to defend God. He ne- you look all through chapter 1 and 2, never did he tell them to defend him. He just said, obey him. And the moment she starts doing something outside of what God said, she's now opened the door to the temptation. And although the, the ultimate step of the, of the rebellion is they ate the fruit, what led them to it and what Satan was after was to get her to begin to reason about the commandment, to see how much sense it made to think about it, and that's what's going to help us where we're going. 1 Samuel 15. We don't have a lot of time, so we've got to do this quickly. 1 Samuel 15 is a story of King Saul and Samuel. And what's happened here 
is God has told Saul, Samuel, the prophet, to go tell King Saul, I want you to go against the Amalekites and utterly destroy them because of how they treated my people when they came out of wilderness to go into the promised land. They kept harassing them. They kept killing their people. They kept, and I want to get, I want to remove them. And I, you are, you are to utterly destroy them from the king on down and every one of their possessions. And I'm not going to get into why God would do that, but just that's what he said. In fact, we don't need to get into why. That's the whole point here. And then Samuel leaves. Saul leaves the people in the battle. He tells one of the small groups, the Kenites, to to, to flee, and that was okay because they had always been good to the Israelites. And then they do that. They attack the Amalekites. God's grace and power is there to destroy the Amalekites. But what they do instead is they take the king Agag and they take the best of the sheep and the best of the animals and they bring them back to camp. And this is always going to come. There comes a day when the prophet comes back to find out what they did. And that's where we're going to pick up. In the meantime, verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set Saul up as king for he has turned back from following me because he has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning. He went down to Carmel. That's not Mount Carmel. That's over by Gilead. And Samuel went to Saul, verse 13, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you, Lord, of the Lord, for I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, Then what then is this bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I heard? And Saul said, Oh, they, 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 the people, they brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your, your God. And the rest, we have utterly discovered. I never noticed that until this morning going over this. When it was something that was done wrong, it was the people. But when they offered the sacrifice, it was we. Let him who was out sin throw the first stone. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, did you not, and not, were you not the, and were not the head of the tribes of Israel, did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? And he sent you on a mission. And he basically said, you've not obeyed what the Lord said to do. Verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder, the sheep, the oxen, and the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to the sacrifice of the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. So Samuel said, this is what I wanted to get to. So what Saul's saying is, look, we, we essentially did what God said, but we improved on it. Because we brought back the best so that we can perform a sacrifice to God. We obeyed, but we've, we've, we've done something even better. We brought back the best to offer to God as a sacrifice. And this is the famous response. Samuel says, verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of God, of the Lord, Adonai? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. I always thought what that meant is it's better to obey God than to pay a sacrifice for having disobeyed Him. That's not what He's talking about. 
the sacrifice he's talking about is what Saul decided to do in place of what God commanded him to do. It was the result of Saul's own reasoning. And Saul, I'm going to attribute him the best of intentions. It's the result of Saul's own desire to take what God said and improve on or do something a little different. That's what sacrifice refers to here. So Samuel's saying, it's better to do just what God said than what you think you ought to do with what God said. You want to know more? Because we'll, we'll finish this. Okay. And this gets very interesting. Verse 23. For rebellion, remember anything outside the authority of God is rebellion? Anything. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Whew. Samuel, Saul then admits, I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord because I feared the people. Let's go over it, because now he brings out King Agag. This is what I want to get to you. He brings Agag out, verse 32. Samuel said, bring Agag out of the Amalekites here to me. So Agag came out to him cautiously. I guess so. Look what Agag says. Surely the bitterness of death has passed. What he's saying is, look, a lot of time's passed. We ought to get over what, our, my, what, we, what we did to the children of Israel. Now, look, I know we did something bad, but come on now. I mean, some time has passed. We ought to be able to forgive each other and get along now. Of course, that's easy to say when you're in custody and there's a guy standing there with a sword. I want to bring these points out because this is where I wanted to get to about this. These are the points that are important here. Here's what was brought as, a, as, as an alternative to obedience. First of all, Saul brought their good intentions. We kept the best to sacrifice to the Lord. In other words, his idea of worshiping God was to bring the best sheep and animals to sacrifice God. God's idea of worshiping Him was obey Him. Number two, that was good intentions. Number two was excuses. Well, the people wanted to do this. But the commandment was given to Samuel. And number three is reasonings. Agag saying, well, surely, look, this is an old issue, and by now we ought to be over it. And here's what they were doing, and here's how it applies to us. Whenever we do any of these things, offer an excuse, offer our own idea, or say, look, you know, there's a lot of time has passed. When we bring our own idea into what God's commanded in His Word or to us, then we're doing the same thing. See, what they were doing, and I'm ascribing the best intentions to them, they were trying to help God. And see, when we do this, when we don't simply obey Him, when we come up with, well, you know, maybe we ought to do it this way or maybe we ought to do it at a different time, what we're really saying is, God, you and I are involved in a process of a discussion so that together we can come up with an idea of what the best thing to do is. When we do that, we're not recognizing him as Adonai. Adonai does not mean somebody who's smarter than I am so that when we have a discussion of the best thing to do, he's got the stronger input than I do. But that's often how we see God. We have his commandments, we have his word that says what to do and what not to do, and we consider them suggestions, and we have our own input, our own ideas, because together God's word and I can come to what the best thing to do here is. 
were doing exactly what Saul did. And notice what God calls that. It's the same sin as witchcraft and rebellion. Why? What is witchcraft? Witchcraft is when you, when you seek power, wisdom, and direction from a spiritual source other than God. That's what the witchcraft is. And ultimately, the one behind that is the one who is in the garden. What's rebellion? Rebellion is setting up my own kingdom, being my own God, so that when the God, the king of his kingdom, gives me a command, because I'm the king of my own kingdom, I take that into consideration in deciding what the best course is. That's what rebellion is. And that's why God says here, to take my commandments and to add your own two cents is just like witchcraft or rebellion to me. How can I then be worshiping true worship out of my heart, God as Adonai, when I'm my own king? When I don't see him as Adonai, I see him as the wise one who makes suggestions to me. Now, if God were angry at us for all this, we'd all be a pile of grease. So don't get afraid, don't get angry. I mean, don't get, get, don't get scared. God's trying to open our eyes to the attitudes of our heart because it's in the way of worshiping Him. It's in the way of seeing Him for who He really is. He is Adonai, the Lord, the one in absolute authority. He is Lord. To substitute my judgments for obedience to God's Word is to assert my own independence. And as we saw in the garden, when they did that, they submitted themselves unto Satan's kingdom. And I saw this yesterday. Actually, I was in talking to Pastor Ray and Pastor Michael, and it clicked in me. What was it that God told them they couldn't eat of in the garden? And there was a tree of life. But there was the other tree. What was the one that they ate of? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that they could decide for themselves what was right and wrong. And when we take God's word or God's commandments and we say, all right, the Lord's commanded this, now let me see what seems right to me. Are we not also partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And then wonder why things aren't working. Wonder why the authority isn't flowing through me. Wonder why my prayers aren't getting answered. Wonder this and wonder that. There are reasons. There are answers. But what God I really sense is after is He loves us. He wants us into an intimate worship with Him. He wants us to know Him as He is. He's the one that called them up with the mountain. He's the one that's calling us. He's the one that's drawing us. But these things are in our way. And God wants to clear the fog out, the attitude of our hearts, so that we'll come to Him, so that He can bless us and we can see Him who He is. Remember, those that got close to Him wanted more. They wanted more. 
They weren't afraid and ran away. They wanted more. They were drawn more and more and more to the light, to the truth. Because what did Jesus say? If my word abides you, abides in you. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, my truth abides in you, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And he says a little later on, you will ask whatever you want and it shall be done unto you. Because you'll be under, the hose will be screwed into the faucet and then I can turn the faucet on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for your amazing grace and patience and love with us. Father, we come to you this morning as children, to a Father that loves us so much, you will speak truth into our lives, that we may open our eyes to see that truth, to confess that truth, and then to repent and change. And this morning, Father, as to the degree we've seen truth in our own lives about our own attitude towards your word and towards you, we come to you now, Father, and confess that so often we've displayed the same attitude that Saul did. With Saul, you judged him and you removed him as king, but you've been gracious to us. You've been patient with us. We're your children. We come to you now, Father, and ask you to continue to open our eyes to see the truth. And as you, we do, as you do that, we commit to you that we're willing to face it and to repent and to make the adjustments in our heart that we need to make. And for that grace, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.